All right, so we're going to cover chapter six this morning. Um, we looked at chapter four, chapter five, which kind of go hand in hand. It's the uh, vision in the uh, great throne room where John gets invited to go up into heaven and he gets to meet God the Father and he gets to meet the Holy Spirit, not the Holy Spirit, but Jesus. And uh, so just really brief review of last week, the last two weeks, last week he got to see the lamb that was slain, Jesus Christ, in the form of a lamb. We don't know exactly what that looks like, but he recognizes him as the lamb of God who was standing as though slain. He's alive, he's well, but he has something about him that reveals that he was slaughtered. That's the actual Greek word. It's the resurrected Christ. Uh, he's the one who's worthy. Remember, the whole uh, throne room scene started out with worthiness, the worthiness of God, and then the question, who is worthy to take the scroll, open the scroll, break the seals, and reveal what's inside? And there's this pregnant pause where nobody's worthy, nobody in heaven, on earth, or under the earth was, was worthy until the lamb showed up. And then the lamb took the scroll. And we're going to see him begin this week the process of opening up those seven seals. Uh, chapter six is six of the seals get broken. There's a brief interlude. Uh, chapter seven is going to be our introduction to the 144,000. Who are they and what are they all about? And then we come back in chapter eight and we're going to look at the seventh seal. And so that's going to kind of create the whole rest of the book of Revelation for us. But this morning, what I want to do is, is set some context. And this is where, um, if I haven't offended you yet, I will, okay? Um, if you have a different take on the book of Revelation, um, it's going to probably come up at this point in time. I told you week one, uh, we're, we're teaching this. I'm teaching this from our church's viewpoint, what we believe is a church. There are a lot of different beliefs about the book of Revelation, different ways of interpreting the book of Revelation, but we're doing it from our church's viewpoint. So one of the things I told you is we're going to talk about the rapture. We believe in the rapture of the church. There may be some in the room who don't. And you know what? I'm okay with that. Um, we can still be friends. We can still be brothers in Christ. And here's the one thing I can guarantee for all of us in the room, we're all going to be wrong. When we get to heaven, we're going to find out how wrong we were on most everything. But the good part is we'll be there. Okay, so we're not going to fight over this. We're not going to fall on our sword over this. But this is what we believe as we look at the scriptures is taught. And it's important because it's going to set up the way we interpret the rest of this book. And that's the reason I want to go over it. So I've given you two handouts two different charts. We're going to look at this one um, briefly, as briefly as I can. And, and this is a timeline of the end times. And it starts with the coming of Jesus. Okay. So it's, it's condensed, but we're going to take a brief look at it and just see how all this sets up where we're going. So on the left-hand side, we have the coming of Christ. We have him living a sinless life, dying on the cross. He resurrects. He ascends back up into heaven. And then what do we have? We have the coming of the Holy Spirit. So that's the, where all this stuff starts. With the coming of the Holy Spirit, what happens? It's Pentecost. It's the beginning of what's called the church age. And that leads us into the next part of the chart. So we are living in the church age. Now I've, I've put a, you are here. I have no idea where we are in this timeline because we don't know how long the church age is going to last. Okay. It's, it, it's going to last for a certain period of time. And then it's got an end to it as we understand it, as we read the scriptures. So at the end of it, Christ is going to return 
for his bride, the church, and we will be taken off this planet. We will leave. That will be the end of the church age. So we believe in the rapture of the church, and we'll look at that in just a second. That's going to usher in the tribulation period. It's the beginning of the tribulation. So we're living in the church age, and we, we believe that it's going to have an end when Jesus Christ comes back for the church, and we're told that nobody knows when that's going to be. Even Jesus Christ himself does not know, but he will come back like a thief in the night, and we will be taken from the earth, and that will usher in the tribulation period. And so what we're going to look at this morning with the opening of these six seals is the beginning of the tribulation period. As soon as those seals begin to be opened, that's what begins to start. So this is a future look. This is not something that's happened in the past. Remember, we, we believe in a future, futuristic view of this book. We believe that this is prophecy about things to come, not things that have happened. Are there corollaries? Can you look at these things and say, well, some of this has already happened? Sure. You know, we've seen tribulation. We've seen wars. We've seen famines. We've seen earthquakes. We've seen a lot of things over the centuries, but they're not what this is talking about. So it ushers in the tribulation and it's divided into seven years, three and a half and three and a half. And we get this from the book of Daniel chapter nine. And we're going to look at that later on in the series. But we do know that the tribulation period is going to last seven years. And it's, it's the period in which these seals really deal with. And remember, there are seven seals. They're sequential in order. You have to break one to get to the next one. And so they, he's going to break them one after the other and reveal one thing after another in sequence. And we believe in chronological sequence. So here's the seven seals, not the literal seals, okay? But they're the seven seals. And we see that four of them take place in the first three and a half years. The fifth seal spans between the two. And the last two are the last three and a half years. But they all deal with basically the same thing, the period of the tribulation. We believe the tribulation is a literal seven years here on the earth dealing with real events that are going to happen to real people, but not us, not the church, because we believe in the rapture. The, the other thing you're going to see is we get to the seventh seal in two weeks. The seventh seal is going to open up and reveal the seven trumpet judgments. The way this thing works is almost like a family tree. You've got seven seals, and then the seventh seal opens up and reveals seven trumpets, and then the seventh trumpet is going to open up and reveal the seven bowl judgments. Everything builds, and it just increases in intensity as we move across those seven years. And what you've got to get through your head is, what would it be like to live during these seven years? Now, there are those who will say, King, the only reason you believe in the rapture is you don't want to be here. Yeah, you're right. And by the time we're done this morning, you won't want to be here during the tribulation. But it's not why I believe in the rapture. It's, I believe in the rapture because I believe it's what the scriptures teach. But I definitely don't want to be here. If I'm wrong and I have to go through the tribulation, that's God's will. I don't want to do it, but I don't have a whole lot of choice in it. But because of what the scriptures teach, I don't believe any of us who are in Christ will be there and have to worry about it. But we're going to look at this a little bit more right now. So here's the time period, three and a half years, three and a half years. The second half is called the Great Tribulation, and we'll see why. The seven seals span that whole period of time. They're sequential. As we've said, they come in sequence. One gets open, the next one gets open, and everything gets revealed. And nowhere from this point forward till we get to, to the end of the book of Revelation is the church mentioned. 
That's another reason why we believe the church is not here. If you go back and read Daniel chapter 9, which is the prophecy on the 70 weeks of Israel, and again, we're going to talk about that in a later part of the series, um, most of those prophecies having to do with the end times, this period of time, never mention the church. Why? Because the church is not involved. See, the church in the Old Testament was a mystery. They didn't know about the church. They didn't prophesy about, prophesy about the church because the church was a mystery. We hear that from the, the New Testament with Paul saying it's a mystery. This idea of Israel and Jew living together in one was a mystery to the Old Testament prophets. So when they talked about the end times, they didn't talk about the church. They talked about Israel. And one of the best illustrations for me as we deal with this is one by Charles Ryrie, who put together the Ryrie Study Bible. And uh, in the Old Testament, what you have is God's focus is on the people of Israel. That's the focus of the, the Old Testament. And so it's like Israel is on a railroad track. They're the train on the track, and God's focus is on that train. And they're moving along, and it comes to the end of a period of time, which is with the death of Christ, and they are moved off the track. They're put on a side track and they're standing still and the church takes over that track. And in the New Testament, who's the focus? It's the church. It, it begins with Pentecost and it moves from that point forward. But with the rapture of the church, we are taken off the track. We go to be with the Lord and then here comes Israel and they're put back on the track. And so during these seven years, the emphasis is not on us, it's on Israel and it's God fulfilling his promises, both his blessings and his curses upon Israel during these seven years on the earth. So that's kind of where we're going. So what happens to the church? This is the other chart I gave you. We, we believe in the first one. Okay. There's four there. Uh, we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. We will be taken before the, the tribulation. There are others who believe the church gets taken mid-tribulation. There are some who believe the church gets taken at the end of the tribulation. And then there are others who say the, the rapture doesn't happen at all. There's only the second coming. So that top chart is the one that we're looking at right here. This is the one that we hold as a church. We believe that at the end of the church age, the church is taken and the tribulation begins. And at the end of the tribulation is when Christ comes. There's a huge difference between the rapture and the second coming. And we'll see what that is. So what's the rapture? You'll have people say, well, the rapture, the word rapture is not even in the Bible. Well, neither is the word Trinity. Okay. It's a concept that's been given a name. It's a doctrine that has a name. Where do we get the name rapture? Well, in the Greek, it's the word harpazo and it means caught up, literally snatched away by force, taken away. Where do we get that from? Well, we get it from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But when it was translated, the Bible was translated into Latin, the word raptura took the place of harpazo. And where do we get the word rapture from raptura? So we say rapture, but it's the whole idea of being caught up, taken away, snatched away. Here's the passage. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, with a sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with him in the clouds to, be meet, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Notice the, the phrase caught up. We will be snatched away and we will meet him where? In the air. And then we will go to be with him. 
Now, the second coming, as we'll see, he comes where? To the earth. And his feet hit where? The Mount of Olives. And the indication is he hits so hard, his landing impacts the topography. There's great events that happen, but he comes to earth. So these are two different things as far as we can tell. They're not the same thing. He, we meet him in the air, and then we go to be with him. So this idea of being caught up, the rapture, is, is essential to understanding what happens to us. And then it's going to set up the tribulation. You got to go back and remember what he said in chapter 3 to the church in Philadelphia. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world, the, the entire earth. Is there tribulation and trials taking place right now in the world? Sure. All over the world. But this is inferring that it's going to be a global event. It's going to be worldwide. Nobody escapes it. But he says, I'm going to keep you from it. That word in the Greek literally means I'm going to withhold you. I'm going to keep you from this hour of trial. Well, what's the hour of trial? Literally, guys, it means a season of testing and trouble and trial. It's a period of time. I'm going to keep you from that. I'm going to withhold you from that. See, you could easily say, well, well, that's his promise to the church in Philadelphia, not us. But, but every one of those seven statements to the seven churches, the reason it's seven is because it's perfect, it's whole, it's complete. It encompasses all churches of all times. And it's a promise to us as his people that we will be kept from this hour of trial, this season of difficulty that's going to come on where? The whole planet. So again, we believe that we're not going to have to go through this. What did Jesus tell his disciples before he left? It's another indication. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. So he tells them, I'm going to come again and I'm going to take you to be with me. But wait a minute. The second coming, he comes to earth. And as we're going to see, he comes to earth, he stays on earth, and he reigns for a thousand years. This is talking about something completely different. I will take you. Paul tells the Thessalonians, wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So this wrath, this, this particular issue has to do with the end. See, we are not under wrath. You and I have escaped the wrath of God because we have been placed in Christ by virtue of our faith in Christ. So we're not going to have to suffer the wrath of God. And everything I can tell reading about the, those seven years is all about the wrath of God on mankind. The wrath that's to come as he judges the world as they are rightly due. So he tells the disciples that I'm going to take you to be with me, that where I am, you may be also. So it can't be talking about the tribulation. He's not going to put us through the tribulation. It can't be talking about the end of the tribulation and having us go through the tribulation. Because at the end of the tribulation, he stays on earth. He didn't go back to heaven for a thousand years. I think it's referring to his, his place in heaven. Where is Jesus Christ right now? Sitting at the right hand of God the Father. 
And so if Jesus Christ were to come back for the church today, where would we go? We would go to be with him in heaven. And we'll come back with him at the end of the seven years of tribulation when he begins his reign here on the earth. So at the end of the tribulation, Jesus will reign in Jerusalem, literal Jerusalem, sitting on a literal throne for a literal thousand years. That's how we interpret this. It's the millennium, the millennial kingdom of Christ. So for a thousand years, he will reign in justice and righteousness, where? On the throne of David, in keeping with the promise that God made to David. You will have a descendant sit on the throne for how long? Forever, unbroken. So he told the disciples, though, I promise to come back and I'm going to take you to be with me. Where is he right now? He's in heaven. So at some point in time, at the end of the church age, when God deems it time, his son will return for his bride. And there's a lot of things we could, we could talk about, and we don't have time this morning, about how that fits in with the whole idea of the, the Jewish wedding feast and how the, the bridegroom comes and gets his bride and takes her to be with him. And then there's a long period of time. And at the end of that, there's the wedding feast. And we have the marriage supper of the lamb that's going to take place. Guys, there's so much in the scriptures that reveal this. And it's, this was not made up in the 18th century, which is what people say. The rapture is just a, it's a relatively new thing. Eusebius and others, uh, fathers of the, old, of the New Testament, patriarchs have talked about this doctrine for centuries. This is not new. And so it's important, though, that we understand it because of what it does for where we're going with the rest of this series. Why is the rapture so important to the church? Well, first of all, we are taken away. We escape the wrath of God to come. But it's going to be essential to understanding chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, all the way to the end of the book. Because if you don't believe in the rapture, it will dramatically impact the way you read this book. So next week, when we look at the 144,000, we're going to see that there are 144,000 Jews because that's what the text teaches. But there are those who say, because they don't believe in the rapture, that there are 144,000 believers. But that doesn't make any sense because the passage clearly says they're Jews from every one of the 12 tribes, 12,000 from every tribe. How do you take that and construe that to be Christians? So... The rapture of the church is essential. And this is probably the main thing. The rapture is what helps us set apart and differentiate between the church and Israel. We are not replacement theologians. We don't believe that Israel, uh, church has, has replaced Israel. All the promises to Israel now go to the church. They screwed up. They blew it. They crucified their own Messiah. And now we get all the blessings. We have been grafted in. But God is going to keep every one of the promises he made to Israel. And the seven years of tribulation is the point in which that begins to happen. Both the punishment of Israel, all those who reject him, but those who come to faith in Christ during the tribulation, which we'll see is going to happen. It's going to set up the whole idea of the wrath to come because that's what the seven seals are about. That's what the seven trumpets are about. That's what the seven bold judgments are about. And again, it puts Israel back on the track as God focuses attention. We're in heaven, and now his focus is back on his chosen people, the people of Israel, and what he's going to do for them and to them. So that kind of sets up our context. Now we can start opening up these seals, or at least the lamb can. So here we go. 
Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. So here's the first seal. The lamb opens the seal. The scene is in heaven, but it's going to now start focusing on what's going to happen on earth as each of these seals get opened. See, John is seeing into the future. He's seeing future events that have not yet taken place, but we have the first seal. What does the first seal bring? Well, he breaks it and we have this invitation and you're going to hear this invitation four different times as one of the living creatures. Remember those strange looking creatures. One looks like an ox. One looks like a man. One looks like an eagle. They, they, they all are different and they call out and they say, come, it's an invitation and a white horse appears. Now we'll, we'll look at this in a second, but what are these things? Who are these horses? What do they mean? Who are the riders on them? This rider has a, a bow, but he doesn't have any arrows. If you're a bow hunter and you go hunting without arrows, how successful will you be? Not very. You may see a lot, but you won't do much. And so there's an idea here that this individual has bows, but he doesn't have arrows. He doesn't have what it takes to do much with the bow, the semblance of strength. He's got a crown. What kind of crown? Well, it's uh, Stephanos. It's the same one we talked about that the 24 elders lay down at the feet of Christ or to God Almighty. And it's a wreath, a garland that they wear on their head and it's, it's given to them for victory. And it says he comes out conquering and to conquer. So who is this? What is this? This pattern is going to repeat itself four different times with four, four different horses and four different riders. So it's, it sets up the four first seals, and this is where we get the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, if you want to have some fun, Google four horsemen of the apocalypse and see what kind of images come up. Who are these people? Well, people have been arguing about this for centuries, and they always try to depict them. Here's one version of these guys. Four different horses, four different riders. They're depicted in four different ways. And what's hilarious is you can actually find images where people have put the faces of known entities, politicians, you know, on these different individuals. And you can, you can guess who some of them are, but it doesn't fit the context because they're, as far as I can tell, they are not four different individuals. They're the same individual manifested in four different ways. So what's the white horse? It's a symbol of victory. White is also a symbol of righteousness. It could stand for the fact that this appear, person appears righteous, but he's really not. He appears in victory. He's carrying a bow that is a threat of war, the threat of military power, but he doesn't have anything to back it up. He doesn't have true power at this point in time. And he's got a crown, a crown of victory, but it also represents his power and authority. But it's interesting to note that it's been given to him. The text is very specific. Who has given it to him? The inference is God has given it to him. See, God is in control of all these things. And, and if you get nothing else out of this whole talk this morning, get that out of it, that God's in control, not just in the future, but right now. As squirrely as things look, as scary as things can be, as out of control as your life may appear, God is in control and he knows exactly what he's doing. And he is at this point in time. This man, whoever he is, and I believe it's a man, an individual, is ruling under God's authority. Where do we get that? Romans 13, 1. 
There's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Even during this period of time, this individual will get his power and authority ultimately from God. He'll be heavily influenced by Satan. But even Satan can't do anything without God's authority, God's permission. So who is he? Well, some say he's the Antichrist. Some say he's just the representation of something really, really bad. But I think he's probably both. I think it's a manifestation of the Antichrist who appears at the very beginning of the tribulation. So when the church leaves, what happens? Who goes with the church? The Holy Spirit who indwells the church, who indwells every believer. So when we're taken off this planet, the Holy Spirit goes with us. Now the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. He's everywhere. So he's not physically gone, but his presence within believers is lifted off the planet. Now think about this. You may not believe it, but you are a restraining influence on this society. Now, some of us are less restraining than others, but our very presence as the body of Christ around this globe holds down evil. If we all get taken away like that and the Holy Spirit goes with us and there's nobody on this planet who believes in Jesus Christ and has the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling them, what's it going to be like? It's going to be like New York City. Okay. Uh, I grew up in New York. I can say that. It's going to be literal hell on earth. And that's when this guy shows up. There's going to be no morality. There's going to be nothing restraining, holding anybody back because nobody on this planet will have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. And so it's going to be a free for all. And that's when this guy shows up. See, I think it's the Antichrist. It's the first vision we, get, we have of this man, the Antichrist, who's going to show up on earth and he's going to broker a peace agreement between Israel and the rest of the world. He's going to be a diplomat. I don't know where he comes from. I don't know what nationality. It doesn't really matter. He's going to show up and he's going to be this diplomat who brokers peace. And what's really interesting is the people of Israel are going to love this guy. Because for the first time, he's going to allow them to rebuild the temple and reinstitute sacrifice, the sacrificial system. He's going to be a hero to these people. And everybody's going to love this guy. He's got the bow, but he doesn't need it because he's done it through diplomacy. And it's going to set up this idea of false peace. It's not a real peace, as Israel's going to find out in a hard way. Because it tells us his true intent is what? He comes out conquering and to conquer but he does it through diplomacy. He wins over the people. It's interesting if you study World War II and you study all the stuff that was happening prior to World War II in Germany, that they were really suffering. They were having all kinds of economic problems and, and who rises to the surface? Hitler. And he, he offers them peace. He offers them prosperity. He offers them power. I'm gonna bring us back to national power and prominence. And he delivers on it, and the people begin to worship him as their Fuhrer. It's the same kind of thing going on here. It's all about what he accomplishes by offering this false peace. And it, it ought to drive us to the Old Testament. Jeremiah says, they offer superficial treatments for my people's mortal wound. They give assurances of peace when there is no peace. See, even the religious leaders, the, the priests of the day that Jeremiah wrote were telling the people, everything's okay. What's Jeremiah saying? Everything's not okay. There is no peace. God is going to bring 
trouble. He's going to bring wrath. But these people are saying, no, no, peace, peace, peace. And here comes the Antichrist offering peace to the world. Paul says of the false prophets in his day, the false teachers, they're saying everything is peaceful and secure. Then disaster will fall on them as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin and there will be no escape. So here comes the Antichrist. He shows up at the scene riding this horse of victory. He's got a bow. He looks powerful. He's a diplomat. He's good looking. Whatever he has, he sways the people, including the people of God. Then we have the second seal. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. So here's the second seal, sequential in order, chronological in order. And you have this is a, is a red horse, and a, he's carrying another rider, and he's carrying something different, and he's accomplishing something different. He takes away the peace. See, we know from Scripture that one of the things the, the Antichrist will do is at midway point of the tribulation, he stops the peace with Israel, and he turns on them. See, remember it said he comes out to conquer, and he will actually begin conquering Israel midway into the tribulation as he turns on them in a violent way. He comes, and he shows up, and he, he begins a period of civil unrest, war, and fighting, and infighting, and people all over the world. Remember, this is around the world. This is global in nature, not isolated. And it says he's been given a great sword, that word given is huge because once again, who gives him that? God. God gives him the ability to do the things he's going to do because ultimately whose wrath is being brought out on the world? It's God's wrath. Not Satan's wrath, not the Antichrist's wrath. It's God's wrath and he's using him as an instrument. It's a red horse which stands for war and bloodshed. Not a white horse, it's a red horse. He's carrying a sword. It's a picture of military power. This time, he doesn't have a bow with no arrows. He's got a sword. And he is bringing about civil unrest all around the world. What does civil unrest create? A void, a vacuum. Somebody needs to step into this mess. We need a leader. We need somebody to save us. We need somebody to rescue us. And so that's what he does. But his power comes from God. Yes, he's under the control. He's under the influence of Satan. But again, ultimately, he's under God's control. And it's God who allows him to do the things that he's doing, bringing about all the civil unrest. See Romans 13, 4, the authorities are God's servants sent for your good. But if you're doing wrong, of course you should be afraid for they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. There will be no one on the planet doing anything right because there will be nobody righteous. The church is gone. There will be people come to faith during the tribulation, but most of them will be put to death by the Antichrist. They'll become martyrs, as we'll see. So this punishment is God punishing the world for its disobedience, for their rejection of his son. So who is this? Who is this second rider on the second horse? I think it's another manifestation of the Antichrist. We're seeing his, his personality get revealed over time. And this time he brings about civil unrest. And you're going to see this morphing of the Antichrist from one nature to another as he reveals his true self. He's like a chameleon. 
Starts out winning the people's favor, starts out looking good, and then he gets more and more violent as we move across the timeline. And he's going to conquer by creating anarchy. See, if you can create anarchy, then you create everything that's right for somebody to take over power. And that's what's happening here. Leads to the third seal. I heard the living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Now it's getting kind of weird. What does that even mean? Well, first of all, third seal gets open, black horse shows up, its rider's got a pair of scales. Think of the Statue of Justice holding that scale that has the two trays, and you put a weight over here and you put your coins over here. And if your coins don't equal the weight, then you've, you've tried, you're trying to cheat me. It's, it has to do with economics. It has to do with money. And it says a voice cries out a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius. Do not harm the oil and the, the wine. There's, there's again, there's someone speaking in heaven stating this. And it's probably God almighty because he's, once again, he's putting limits on what this individual can do. Black horse, famine, death. So once again, it's getting worse as we move across the timeline. He's got scales. He's controlling the economics of the day. Civil unrest creates war, creates all kinds of anarchy, and with that becomes economic disaster. People are not able to work. People are not able to raise their crops. And that leads to a shortage in food, which adds to famine, which adds to inflation. And all this stuff is beginning to happen globally, okay, all around the world. So who is this? Once again, it's the Antichrist. And he's going to bring about economic collapse. Because if you can create economic collapse, it makes everybody dependent upon whoever controls the economy. Whoever controls the purse strings. And the Antichrist is going to control the economy. We're even told that at, at one point in time, you're going to have to have his sign, his seal on you to just buy and sell. See, he's, he's increasing in power and he's going to use that power to his advantage. And it's a time, this period along the timeline is one marked by famine and starvation as people can't even eat. And what we're told is that you can't, you're going to have to, have to have a denarius to get a quart of wheat. Well, what does that mean? Well, a denarius is one day's wages in John's day. It's going to take a full day's wages to buy a loaf of bread. That's how bad it gets. We don't have that problem right now, but in this time they will, and people will starve as a result. Well, why three quarts of barley? Well, barley is just a cheaper form of grain. You can buy more barley for the same amount of money, but you're not going to be able to eat for very long. So why does he talk about, don't touch the wine? Why, why can't you touch the oil? Once again, I think that's a picture of God speaking from heaven saying, you only have so much control because wine was their food, their beverage. They didn't drink the water very much because the water wasn't always safe, so they drank wine. Well, you're not going to let people have nothing to drink. And you're not going to touch the oil because oil was needed for lamps, Oil was needed for cooking. Oil was needed for medicinal purpose. Oil was needed for a lot of things. And so God says, you, you're gonna, you can touch the wheat crops. You can touch the barley. You can touch 
all kinds of things, but you're not going to touch those two things. He's going to restrain how much he can do. Well, that leads us to the fourth one. I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse. Its rider's name was death. First time we've got a name for one of the riders. Hades followed him and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with famine, with pestilence, which is disease and by wild beasts of the earth. Hey, it's really getting fun. It's getting worse as we move along. Fourth seal, pale horse. I picture just kind of a light colored horse, but the actual word is, is going to tell us something different. We're told that the rider's name is death and he's got Hades coming behind him. Really strange because both of these are not people. They're either a state. Death is a state of being. You're dead. Hades is a place, not a person. But it says that he's given authority only over a fourth of the earth. What fourth of the earth? I don't know. That's not the important point. It's God, once again, restricting and limiting his power. But it says he's able to kill by sword, by famine, by disease, and by wild beasts. There's going to be wild beasts attacking people. It's like when you watch apocalyptic movies, you know, zombie movies, and, and all the infrastructure's collapsed, and there's no electricity anymore, and the animals are killing people, and it's just wild on earth. I don't know exactly what it's going to be like, but it's going to be really, really bad. Famine, disease, sword, wild beasts. But you got a pale horse. The actual Greek word is chloros, and it's where we get chloroform. It, it's the color of death. It's like a corpse, pale green. He's right, his name is death. He's got a name, the death of the body. He's followed by Hades, the destination of the souls of the lost. Remember, Hades is where when the lost who don't believe in Jesus Christ die, they go to Hades. They don't go to hell yet. They go to Hades. And so he's described in this really weird name. He's called death itself because his goal is to bring death mainly to the people of Israel, to destroy them. And then when people start to come to faith in Christ during the tribulation, he focuses on them and there will be martyrs as he brings death to them. He's out to destroy the souls of men. But remember what Jesus said, I have the keys of death and Hades. I've conquered. I'm in control. And the cool thing is in all of the suffering, all of the tribulation going on during these seven years, God is in control and people will be coming to faith in Christ. How? By his grace and mercy. It will be his doing. So who is he? I think he's another representation of the Antichrist who brings death. He's out to destroy. He's out to ruin things on earth. He's attacking the people of God, the Jews, but his power is limited only to a fourth of the earth, but it's going to increase over time as he wields more power. That brings us to the fifth seal. Here we see a change. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you'll judge and avenge our blood on those who will dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. See, we got a change, a change in focus. Something is going on. Fifth seal gets broken, but there's no living creature. There's no horse, there's no rider because the scene shifts to heaven and John is seeing back up in heaven and he sees these individuals 
We got to figure out who are they? What does he see? The souls of those who've been slain. Where were they slain? During the tribulation. And we're going to see that they come to faith in Christ and immediately the Antichrist puts them to death and they go to heaven. They're tribulation martyrs. This is not the church. This is not past martyrs of the church. These are people dying during the tribulation because of their faith. It says they died for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. See, we're going to find out next week that the 144,000 or 140 are 144,000 Jews who come to faith in Christ and they become witnesses to the world and they begin, begin saving Jews and Gentiles and the Antichrist attacks them relentlessly and puts them to death. It's not a reference to the church because look at what they say. They say, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth, those who put us to death, those who martyred us. See, and then Jesus tells him, or God tells him, rest a little longer until the full number of the fellow servants and brothers should be complete. There are more who are going to die. Rest. He's, they're given a white robe. They're told to wait because there's more who are going to come to faith. They're going to die at the hands of the Antichrist. See, God's at work. God is redeeming. God is restoring, even in the midst of all the suffering. And we'll discover more about them later. Final seal. I looked and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, Hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? This is where it really starts to look like the book of Revelation, right? All kinds of funky things happening, strange things. It, it's a, another look back onto the earth. Fifth seal was a glimpse into heaven in the future. Now we're looking back on the earth as John's attention is focused on what's going to happen. And we see all these disasters, all these things happening in the heavens, weird things, strange things. The first four seals reveal what the Antichrist is gonna do under the control of God, but now we're seeing what God's gonna do. And it's dramatically different as his handiwork takes place. We see a great earthquake. We see some kind of a solar eclipse. We see a blood red moon. We see stars from falling from the sky and then the sky rolled up like a scroll. I have no idea what that means. Nobody has any idea what that means. And see what drives me absolutely nuts when you start studying this and all the books that come out on this about the blood red moons and, and we start looking at natural disasters like tsunamis and earthquakes and we go, that's it, that's the one. Guys, what I'm telling you is this is not anything anybody has ever seen before. These are not natural disasters. Mountains and islands disappearing. This is not because a glacier melt. Okay, this is, this is supernatural handiwork of God doing things that we've never seen before. As bad as hurricanes are and tsunamis are and earthquakes are right now, they're nothing compared to what's gonna happen in this day and age. When God does what only God can do, they're not normal, they're not natural, they're not explainable, explicable, that you can't replicate them, they've never happened before. You can't look at a blood red moon and go, oh, that's what it is. You can't look at a solar eclipse and go, that's what it is. 
Because this kind of solar eclipse, this kind of blood red moon, we've never seen before and we have no idea what it's going to be like. Because it's God doing what only God can do. And look at the reaction. This ought to tell you it's pretty special. I've seen a solar eclipse. I didn't go run and hide in a cave. I've seen on TV a blood red moon. I didn't get scared to death. But look at what these people do. The kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to them, fall on us, hide us from the face, face of him who's seated on the throne from the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand. Even people on the earth will know it's a God deal. Notice they don't go, well, that's just a solar eclipse. Happens every seven years. Oh, that's just a blood red moon. It's a natural occurrence. That's just an earthquake. That's just a, no, that's God almighty and the wrath of the lamb. But who do they call out to? They don't call out to God almighty. They don't call out to the lamb. They call out to the mountains and rocks, kill us. See, they would rather die than be redeemed. That's pretty sad. It gives you a really good glimpse of what men without the Holy Spirit and the grace of God will do. So here's your first question. What do you think it will be like for those who are alive on the earth when all these things take place? I know you don't want to think about that. I know you don't want to be there, neither do I. But guys, think about what it would be like if these things were happening around you, famine, death, pestilence, disease, animals killing people, people killing people. What would it be like? Secondly, why is it important that the Antichrist's power, authority, and rule come from God? What should this tell us about God's sovereign rule? Even now, in your life, as bad as things may appear. Finally, what's missing in the final three verses? I kind of gave you this one, but the people call out, but who and what do they leave out? See, there are people doing that right now all around this planet, who God's trying to get their attention. He's trying to extend to them his grace, and they're going, no. They would rather die than be redeemed. That's why we need to keep sharing the gospel. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this book. Thank you for your control over events, past, present, and future, that we can trust you, that you know what you're doing. You're working your plan to perfection. And Father, there's so much we don't understand, but let us understand this. You are in control. And may we trust you more. Bless the time around the tables, Father, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.